I forgot the Holy Spirit. I, I had deliberately skipped a passage in John chapter 7 when we had gotten there with the intention of saving it for Pentecost Sunday, which was last Sunday. And, uh, and I forgot. It was Friday afternoon that I said, oh no, Pentecost Sunday is this Sunday. It's easy to do. There's a cultural artifact for us to remember uh, the birth of Christ. Christmas comes around. You, you can't go anywhere without knowing that. A cultural artifact in uh, celebrating the resurrection of Christ. Easter gets marked. You know, culturally there's an artifact. There's uh, Easter sales and things like that. And it's not too hard for us to remember the death of Christ. It's only a few days before. And so the church marks it on Good Friday. But there's no cultural artifact for marking the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Now there is a day on the church calendar for that, but most evangelical churches in America ignore it. And we kind of, in America, we, we, we cede the Holy Spirit over to our charismatic and Pentecostal friends. I was reminded of that some time ago. Um, I was uh, with some friends outside of our church. One was a Presbyterian friend. The other was a, was a Pentecostal friend. And they got to talking about uh, doctrine, and it was an amicable discussion. Um, but as they were talking, you know, about the, 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 the gifts of the Holy Spirit and, uh, and, and uh, things like that, my, my Presbyterian friend said, he goes, well, well, we're Presbyterians. We don't believe in the Holy Spirit. I, I think he misspoke. I hope he did. How did we come to that? Martin Luther wrote in his famous hymn that we sing frequently, the spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Uh, John Calvin was known uh, derogatorily to his enemies, but, but with accolades by his friends as the theologian of the Holy Spirit. When I was in seminary, my beloved teacher, Dr. Richard Gaffin, impressed on me that there's, that there's no daylight between the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that you can't separate those things, that they go together, that you can't have one without the other. They're like two sides of a coin. And, and then he added that the same is true about the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. That the death and the resurrection of Jesus cannot be separated from his sending the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And he lamented that the church too often does not appreciate this. Lamented the shame of forgetting the necessity of the Holy Spirit as a part of the gospel message. A few years ago when I was reading through my notes from Dr. Gaffin, I was Struck by that and convicted. We mark the birth of Christ at Christmas. We mark the resurrection of Christ at Easter. We uh, observe the remembrance of his death on Good Friday. But we forget Pentecost Sunday. And so I tried to remember to uh, talk about the Holy Spirit on Pentecost Sunday. But, but we forget the Holy Spirit. I forget the Holy Spirit. 
And so I'd like to remedy that today, and I want to go back to that passage that I'd saved for Pentecost Sunday in John's Gospel. It's John chapter 7, verses 7 to 39. Now, to just set us where we are, uh, Jesus has gone up to the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. Uh, we just saw recently uh, his healing, the man sending him down to the pool all the way in the south, that blind man who came back. seeing it, it's the same feast. Jesus had gone up. He began teaching in the middle of the feast. We read in verse 37 of John 7, On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Lord Jesus, uh, you are glorified now you live and reign with the Father. Lord, by your word you have told us that if any of us asks of the Spirit, you'll give to us of that Spirit. And so, Father, we pray to be filled with that Spirit that we may see the glory of Christ And that the glorified Christ may be glorified in our lives. Amen. Well, we're observing the Lord's Supper today. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that when we observe the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And as I said before, that death does not exist in isolation. It's a part of a complex There could be no death of Christ if the Son of God had not become incarnate, had not taken to himself a human nature. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, we read, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And yet the death of Jesus has no meaning, no power, no effect apart from his resurrection. It really wouldn't matter that Jesus died if he had not been risen to life. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sin. And all of that, his birth, his death, his resurrection, would mean nothing, could mean nothing for you or for me without the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And so the coming of the Holy Spirit is not an add-on to what God has done. It's not an add-on to the gospel message. It's not God kind of saying, oh, would you like fries with that? prompts a question, though, when when we read this. The question is, when was the Spirit not yet? Now, you know, my translation, the one that I've read from, probably yours, 
says the spirit was not yet given for Jesus had not yet been glorified. And our translators do that, I think, because what the Greek says is puzzling. They're perhaps afraid that it would lead us to a wrong conclusion because what the original Greek actually says is uh, up until that time, the spirit was not yet for Jesus had not yet been glorified. What does John mean by that? The spirit was not yet. Well, I'll tell you what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean the spirit did not exist. That's not what he means. If we go back to the very start of the Bible, the beginning of uh, Genesis, we're told, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said, let there be light. And it's significant, I think, that John told us at the start of his gospel that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, that all things came into being by him. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And, and so we see God there, the Father. We see the Word, and we see the Spirit of God present. At Jesus' baptism, the baptism of the incarnate Son of God, we're told that as he came up from the banks of the Jordan, that the Spirit descended upon him like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And and those passages uh, were at the basis, the genesis for the uh, early church's formulation of this thing called the doctrine of the Trinity, that there's one God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. You know, you have to derive that. There's no, there's no kind of systematic theology of the Trinity in the Bible. You don't find the word Trinity in the Bible. And yet, uh, understanding that doctrine of the Trinity is really essential uh, for understanding some otherwise puzzling passages in the New Testament. In John chapter 14, uh, we'll see Jesus as he's preparing his disciples for his departure to go to the cross and then to go back to the Father. And, And Philip will say to him, Lord, just just show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus says, Philip, have I been with you so long, and you don't know me? He who's seen me, Philip, has seen the Father. You know, it's in that that same chapter uh, earlier that Jesus talks about the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he says this, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot receive him because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him for he lives with you. How does the spirit live with them? Well, because Jesus is living with them. Lives with you. And will be in you. 
And then talking about this promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. And because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourselves to us and not to the world? And Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he'll obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Do you understand what Jesus is saying there? That in this promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit, of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that the Father also dwells in us, that the Son also dwells in us. And the event in history, Elder Doug read it this morning from Acts chapter 2, the event in history, when this takes place, once for all for the church, is in Pentecost. See, see Pentecost is as unique in the history of the church as the incarnation of the Son of God. It's something that happens, and it's not going to happen again. It's happened once. The death of Christ is something that happens once for all. The resurrection of Christ is something that happens once for all. The sending of the Holy Spirit to the church is something that God does never to withdraw again. The Spirit comes to the church. And so Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit to the church, is a once-for-all event in the same way that the incarnation is once-for-all, the death of Christ is once-for-all, the resurrection of Christ is once-for-all. Jesus says, or John tells us, rather, that the Spirit was not yet, for Jesus had not yet been glorified. The Son of God is eternal, equal in power and glory with the Father. And yet, in what the Bible calls the fullness of time, this one who always was became something he never was before. He became a human being. The Word, John says, became flesh. And in a similar way, in the ascension of Christ, the Holy Spirit, who is eternal, uh, equal in power and glory with the Father and the Son, became something that he was not. He became the spirit of the incarnate, the crucified, the risen, the glorified Christ. And so John tells us he was not yet because Jesus had not yet been glorified. You have to understand when you read through the New Testament that a spirit is not only a proper noun for uh, what we would call the third person of the Trinity, but spirit is also an adjective. It characterizes the coming age, the new creation. We confessed it today in the mystery of godliness. We said that he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. 
Please don't think that that means that Jesus didn't rise bodily. It's not what that means. It means that he entered into this world. The word became flesh. He entered into this creation. Uh, He bore all the demerits of a fallen creation, though he himself was without sin. But when he rose, he didn't rise back to this creation. He rose as the start of the new creation, a creation that is characterized not by flesh, but by spirit. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is integral to the gospel. The Holy Spirit is vital to our redemption and to the coming renewal of all things. So why do we not speak about the Spirit more? Why, Why does it seem that there's such mystery surrounding the Spirit? You know, Jesus is kind of easy to get our hands on, if you will. The Word became flesh. In his first letter, John says concerning the Word of life, we're going to tell you about things that we've We've seen and heard and we've touched our hands have handled. And, and, and we, we kind of understand the Father, but the Spirit is mysterious. If the Holy Spirit seems more mysterious than the Father and the Son to you, there's a reason for that. Um, and it's not because Spirit as the word is used in the New Testament, as I said again, to uh, indicate not only the third person of the Godhead, but to indicate what will characterize the coming age. It's not because spirit is less substantial. You know, in uh, ancient Near Eastern thought, in, uh, in, in Greek thought, and carrying over to Roman thought, oh my goodness, and you find it in the Egyptians, um, find it all over the place, Spirit is that realm of uh, what is shadowy and gossamer and not quite substantial. It's a counterpart to this world, which is solid and substantial. In the Bible, it is exactly the other way around. The Spirit creates what is substantial, what is abiding, what is forever lasting... And flesh, in the Bible, refers to what is weak and what is transitory and what is passing. Um, You know, we're told that uh, that there are at least, some some scientists think there might be more, but, but four dimensions, right? There's height, there's depth, there's breadth, and there's a fourth that we perceive. You know what it is? It's time. But time for us moves pretty slowly. I wonder what would happen if we could see time in the same way we could see the same spatial dimensions. You'd see the books in front of you crumble into dust. You'd see that they're not lasting. That the things of this world are insubstantial. In the ancient Near East, in Greek thought, spirit is... The shadow world, the shade world. In biblical thought, these are the shadowlands. 
These are what do not last. These are what are insubstantial. The Spirit is mysterious to us because the Spirit, peculiarly and particularly, has the task of drawing our attention to and glorifying not himself, but the Son. And so in John chapter 16, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it's for your good that I'm going away, for unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And then he says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is to come. He will bring glory to me by taking of what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take of what is mine and make it known to you. The Holy Spirit seems mysterious to us because he does not draw attention to himself, but to the Son, as the Son seeks to glorify the Father. And and I think that understanding that um, has helped me uh, even in those, what, what I will call unbalanced passages. You know, there are passages in the Bible that speak of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy has caused us to be born again uh, to a living hope uh, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And he goes on to speak about then the Holy Spirit. So you've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you see that throughout the Bible. And then there's those passages that are unbalanced, that, that seem to speak of only the Father and the Son. I've found that even in those unbalanced passages where you only read of the Father and the Son, if you look closely, closely enough, perceptively enough, you'll find the Spirit there as well, pointing us to Jesus and what he's done. That's the, that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And, and so in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit remakes the people of God and begins the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that in him, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia. And so in our, in our lives and, and, and in the Bible, it's instructive for us to, to note that. You know, I said before there's kind of unbalanced passages. Let me give you an example of that. In the, at, the, at the end of the story, the book of Revelation, let me take you right to the end of the story. I mean the very end of the story, chapter 22, the last chapter. And it says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree 
are for the healing of nations and no longer will there be any curse for the throne of God and of the Lamb are in the city and his servants will serve him. And it's a beautiful picture, but you look at the throne and who's on the throne? There's God, there's the Lamb. Seems unbalanced. The imagery that... um, that, uh, that, that John picks up here is from the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel 47. And I'm just going to read this for you. It says, the, the man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, and the water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar, He then brought me out through the north gate, led me around the outside of the outer gate facing east, and the water was flowing from the south side. And as the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. And he asked me, son of man, do you see this? And he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river, and he told me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the sea. You know what the Arabah is? It's the, it's the desert in the south. The sea is the Dead Sea. You've been to the Dead Sea, right? What lives there? <laughs> Not a thing, right? Never, never has. Nothing lives in the Dead Sea. Listen to what Ezekiel says. So it goes, it goes down to the Arabah, and it enters the sea, and when it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. Right? Wherever this water goes, life is. What did Jesus say or John tell us in uh, chapter 7 here? It's the same thing they told the woman at the well in Samaria. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Do you see it now in the book of Revelation? There's the throne of God and of the Lamb, and proceeding out from it is the water of the river of life that gives life everywhere it goes. And that brings us to the, to, to the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's by the Holy Spirit that the prophets and apostles spoke the word of God, Peter tells us in his first letter. It's by the Spirit of God that we are baptized into the body of Christ, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12. It's by the Spirit of God that we are sealed for the day of redemption he tells us in Ephesians 4. It's by the Holy Spirit that we are regenerated and renewed, he tells us in Titus 3. It's by the Holy Spirit that we're able to call God in truth our Father, 
in Galatians 4. And our resurrection from the dead in a body more substantial than the one you possess now will come by the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. And it's by that spirit in 1 Corinthians 6 that you were washed, that you were sanctified, that you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. And so the Holy Spirit, we as we confess, is the Lord and the giver of life. Wherever he goes, life is. He proceeds out from the Father and the Son as we see that beautiful picture in Revelation 22. He spoke by the prophets. There would be, could be, no one holy Catholic and apostolic church if it were not for the Holy Spirit. In the water baptism that we receive is a reflection of that true baptism and cleansing of the Holy Spirit for the remission of our sins. The Holy Spirit is the defining characteristic of the age to come. And so together with the Father and Son, He's to be worshipped and glorified. 